In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So if you've been following the Art of Manliness for a while, you know we're big fans of Theodore Roosevelt around here. The guy crammed a lot into a lifetime. There's a new biography out about him uh, that takes a look at his life as a natural historian, conservationist, hunter, and it uses TR's actual field notes that he took out in the field as the primary source to write this biography. It's called Theodore Roosevelt in the Field. And today on the show, the author Michael Canfield and I discuss what we can learn about Teddy Roosevelt's approach to life from his field notes that he meticulously began as a boy. He started this when he was like eight or nine years old, and he continued uh, throughout his even throughout his presidency. We also talk about how his field notes that he took helped sharpen his keen sense of observation and how that helped him during his presidency and his political life. And then finally, Michael and I discuss what life lessons men can take from the field notes of the bull moose himself, Theodore Roosevelt. Really interesting show. Uh, Be sure to check the show notes out after you listen because you can actually see actual scanned images of Teddy Roosevelt's field notes as well as links to resources mentioned in the show. Uh, You can find the show notes at aom.is slash Canfield. That's spelled C-A-N-F-I-E-L-D. Mike Canfield, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you got a great uh, biography out about Theodore Roosevelt, um, but this one's unique. It's called Theodore, Roos- Theodore Roosevelt in the Field, and it's unique in that you focus on his life as a natural scientist, hunter, conservationist, using his field books, field notebooks that he kept all throughout his life as your primary source. I'm curious, how did you get interested in this part of Teddy Roosevelt's life? That's a good question. I got interested in his field notes from a previous project that I did on how currently living scientists and naturalists keep their notebooks and journals and kind of try to figure out how people would actually keep scientific and natural history information in the field as opposed to how we think they might or what we would imagine. And so out of that process uh, and project, I did a little bit of consideration on historical field notes, Darwin, Linnaeus, uh, even Lewis and Clark's notes from their expedition, and stumbled across Theodore Roosevelt's notes, um, which are here at Harvard. Um, About two-thirds of the notebooks are in our Theodore Roosevelt collection. And I found them, and I was actually just talking to somebody about them at one point, describing the Africa Diary, the 1909 Africa Diary, with these images that Roosevelt wrote, these little sort of scrawled images of all the animals he shot. And it kind of just took off from there. So, yeah, you use these notebooks. Uh, they have some of them at the, the archives at Harvard University. Um, you know, and it's crazy. How do we have field note and field notebooks from when he was a nine-year-old boy? Because he started this as a very young man. We'll talk about his career as a natural scientist or a naturalist as a, as a child. But, you know, I... I had a journal when I was in second or third grade, so about the same age as Theodore mm-hmm. Roosevelt when he was doing his mm-hmm. field notebooks, but I threw them away. So why, 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 what was it about, how did Teddy Roosevelt, why did he keep these field notebooks from when he was an eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-old boy? I think that part of it was that he was very serious about his natural history study, his study of the world. Um, there's no question about that. He was very studious um, and I think there was more of a tradition back then of keeping diaries, in other words, um, writing in diaries and then and then maintaining them. One thing I found very interesting, though, was that 
there's evidence that he actually copied over his diaries and journal accounts. So one of the earlier journals from his, what they call his grand tour, um, when he went off with his family to Europe the first time, he kept a diary. And there is a, a diary, actually, which he kept as a little herbarium. He pressed plants in it, which still survives. We have this diary, and we have the little pressed plants inside. And then there's another journal, which is not not in the diary format, that has, like, you know, the names or the dates and the lines printed on the pages, but just a blank journal that he wrote in. And some of them are actually – some dates have a um, entry in the diary – and then there's, in a, a separate journal, the same diary entry that's been copied over, but actually the punctuation and the grammar is slightly better. So what Roosevelt had done is he'd gone back to some of his diaries and copied them over into journals, like actually copied over the accounts. So it's not clear that all the original actually, the original documents actually survived, um, but but many of these journals and diaries survived, and I think he, they were just very important to him, and he was serious about his recording, partly because it allowed him to tell stories and narratives of his adventures, which we can get to later, but it certainly showed up in the Badlands and, and when he was doing more professional writing on his adventures. Well, let's talk about his the seriousness that he took his... I mean, he even as a boy, he thought of himself as a natural scientist, or I guess they'd call himself a natural historian. Yeah. Um, I mean, so how did this boy, he grew up in a brownstone in New York City, so an mm-hmm. urban area. How did he lo- develop this intense love for the outdoors and all things nature, um, despite growing up in an urban area? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and I think it probably has a number of... Um potential answers, which I don't think we can know for sure. Um, you know, Wilson and other people might call it biophilia, people who, you know, people just love nature and are naturally connected to nature. But Roosevelt obviously was an extreme case in this instance, along with many others, but he, he loved it from a very young age. He was drawn to it. And he had, so I guess what I was, what I would say is that he had a natural predisposition. He just seemed to love to go out and study nature, but it wasn't just about studying nature. He just loved to go out and do things in the world. And that's a facet that I think is people look to his early natural history study and say, oh, he was a naturalist from a young age. And I would agree that's true. Absolutely. He loved nature, but he also, I would say that's a symptom of a larger character um, element in Roosevelt that he loved to just go out to what I call the field. He loved to go out and do things in the greater world, connect directly with his greater world. And the early natural history stuff was an example of that. His father, especially, but his family made a lot of those early expeditions possible early on. He went to the great swamp area of New Jersey, this town called Luanica. Um, there's a little brook called Wanaka Brook um, where they went and rented a house, and he rambled around in nature looking at birds and cicadas and all the rest. And then later, obviously, they went to Oyster Bay and up into the Adirondacks. So his family took him out a lot away from New York City um, to natural areas, uh, and they spent a lot of time in the summers especially in those areas. And speaking of how his father encouraged this, um, I mean, what other ways? I mean, I thought when I read this part of Roosevelt's life, I really admired his father. Uh, he was actually a really yeah. great example of what it means to be a good dad. I mean, what were some of the other ways that Teddy Roosevelt's father, Theodore Roosevelt's father, uh, encouraged this love of nature in his son? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly just making the expeditions happen, if you want to call them expeditions, going up to upstate New York, et cetera. I would say also he, his father, Theodore Sr., went with Roosevelt on some of these things. There's a great passage where Roosevelt describes in his diary um, his father reading to him from the last of the Mohicans around a campfire in upstate New York while he fell asleep. So to me, that's just a such a great symbol or, or poignant moment when you see Roosevelt's father instilling this love of the field in Roosevelt, what could be better than being out on a canoe trip with your dad? And he reads, you know, <laughs> the last of the Mohicans to you and you fall asleep. It's awesome. Yeah, I um, love that. 
Another another element, I think, that um, his dad, who was not a naturalist himself, um, but just saw this interest early on in Roosevelt, um, when Roosevelt, you know, was Theodore uh, was carrying these books around the, his family's library from David Livingstone, or, you know, about Africa and all these other things. He, he re- recognized in his son that this was an interest and he was going to foster it. Roosevelt Sr. helped found the American Museum of Natural History. So Albert S. Bickmore, who was an advocate, had come to see Theodore Sr. for funding and, and support to create the AMNH in New York. And Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt's dad really helped and helped found it in, in their living room at the Brownstone. Um, and another example is when they um, came back from their trip to uh, Roosevelt's trip um, to Europe, he his father actually hooked him up with John Bell, who was a taxidermist who had worked with uh, John James Audubon. He was the kind of Audubon's right-hand man, this being Bell, who had a taxidermy shop. And I, I interpret, I'm not, it doesn't say explicitly that his father made the connection, although Roosevelt sort of says that. It seems that Roosevelt's father really got him a position working and learning from John Bell of how to prepare uh, ornithological specimens. So there are a bunch of different ways that his dad really nurtured that. And I guess the last thing is that when he went to college, his father said something like, I can't quote it just off, off the top of my head, but he said something like, if you want to be a scientist, you're free to do so. I will support you in that. You're not going to make as much money. You're not going to have as as a sort of elaborate a life as you have here, but you can make that decision. And I always thought that was a pretty nice thing for a father to do, too, to be realistic, but put the decision in his son's court. Yeah, I love that. Um, and going back to how serious Roosevelt took himself as a naturalist, even as a boy, like you talk about in the book, he you know kept very detailed um, notes or records of animals he saw, the habitats, etc. But like he even kept like he had a museum inside his his house. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And he they called it the uh, Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. And he founded this with his cousins and a few other associated compatriots um and they had a natural history society as well, a group. So they they had this museum, right, where they contributed their collected specimens. And then they also had what they called a society where they actually would present papers to one another. So they would write up a little paper on one of them is about the migration of whales. And Roosevelt would read this paper and they would talk about it. So he wrote this thing out and they would present it to each other and talk about the finer points of whales migrating. So they were serious. They they were modeling kind of what happened in the Linnaean society and some of the, you know, professional natural history bio, biological societies in the world. Um, but they were acting this out in a serious way, not just sort of put, you know, collecting a few shells and bird's eggs and stuff. Um, and that really led to him studying with Bell and preparing specimens. And as he, you know, went through his teenage years and into college, he then, you know, had a, had a pretty extensive collection of bird skins and knowledge of birds um, that led to some of his, his first publications as well. Right. Just to remind people, like they were, he was having these natural history society meetings when he was like eight or nine years old. Right. Uh, that, yeah. I mean, that was a little, I think the, the main natural history society things when, um, they presented papers were a little later, probably 13, 14 ish. Um, but yeah, he started collecting and that whole question of childhood natural history museums was, was kind of a thing, uh, you know, people, kids would do that. Um, not everybody obviously, but, but other people who were his peers and, um, that was kind of a, a reasonably common thing for kids to do who were really kind of biologically inclined, um, would do some of that. So, but I think he took it to a, a little bit more of a professional sense than most kids. Most kids would just have stuff in their room or whatever, but he, they formalized this. There's a document, um, which you can read in the book and, um, at Harvard, the, you know, that is the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History, history document that is sort of their, their charter, um, where they wrote it all out. Um, so it wasn't just an informal thing. They were serious about it. Yeah, and I thought there was a funny scene where I think someone, either a maid or uh, his mother, yeah, threw yeah. out 
<laughs> some animals that he had collected. <laughs> right, the mice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there were there are periodic examples of him butting up against these things. You know, some at home when he originally had the museum in his bedroom, and then the maid sort of said, this is not okay with us. <laughs> and so they had to move it up to a, a more remote location in the house. And then when he was in Dresden, the, um, you know, he was keeping mice and other things and the family he was staying with, with just were, you know, trying to get rid of all these crazy animals that Roosevelt was keeping in the house. Um, so, you know, he, his, um, how should I say this, his tolerance and interest in having a little natural history museum in his room didn't always fit with um, how other people thought about it. And I guess even when he came to to Harvard, um, his boarding house uh, at, on Winthrop Street, which I'm actually just looking out the window right now, and it's at that site, the, the, the um, boarding house is no longer there. Um, but where he lived here, if you look at the photographs, he brought a lot of that kind of thing into his boarding house room as well when he was in college. So yeah, he brought his taxidermy kit. Yeah, all all that kind of stuff. Like he had, you know, he'd bring in turtles or whatever, whatever kind of stuff he found um, into his room. Yeah. So did uh, Theodore Roosevelt actually make contributions to the field of natural history as a young man, or was this? I mean, was this, or was this just a hobby? Yeah, I I think that you could make the case that he definitely did. Um, Early on, you know, in his teenage years, his collections were pretty, how should I say, it's pretty professionalized for that age. He wrote species accounts, especially for the um, specimens that he collected on the trip to Egypt and the Holy Lands, for example. He has multiple accounts of them, multiple specimens that he's dissected and documented the contents of the crops and um, all that. So there's really good natural history information there. It's that set of information that he created there was never published in that form and isn't a real scientific contribution, but it allowed him to then, when he came to Harvard, um, if he ended up assessing the, I guess you'd call it the ornithological fauna, the the birds of the Adirondacks and the birds of Oyster Bay, where he'd spent a lot of the summers. And then they published um, a couple of bird lists, which are a true contribution to natural history. Because when you make a, a, a list, a faunal list of, say, the Adirondacks or of Oyster Bay, then that gives sort of a, a snapshot in time of what organisms live there, in this case, birds, that can people then can compare to later on or can go down there and know what's there. So yes, he absolutely did. And um, some of the work he did as a late teen in Oyster Bay folded into that stuff that he then published in the, the Oyster Bay um, bird list. Very cool. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that pivotal moment where Roosevelt's father told him, like, you can be a natural scientist and I'll support you. Um, you know, that was kind of, that was his career trajectory. But what at what point did Roosevelt decide that he wasn't going to be a full-time natural historian and instead devote himself to politics? That's a great um, moment, I think, in Roosevelt's de- development. When he came to Harvard, I, he really was interested in becoming a scientist, and he did enjoy his natural history courses here for sure. Um, there's clear evidence of that um, in his notebooks, but also in how he talked about his time. But I, my interpretation is that there are a few pieces that caused him to pivot away from that. One uh, caused him to pivot away from becoming a full-time sort of naturalist scientist of the day. Um, one was the studies that were going on here and the way that uh, natural history and science was being um, was being taught in the Museum of Comparative Zoology, which is our, sort of the natural history museum at Harvard. Um, the way it was being taught at the time really grew out of a, a, 
a German school um, where they were doing a lot of section cutting and pulling organisms apart and looking at very small things under the microscope, et cetera, and uh, with a lower, um, how should I say this, it, with a, a lower focus on field work. And field work was really where Roosevelt wanted to be. He wanted to be out in the field, you know, looking at animals in their natural habitat, et cetera. And so I think over time he enjoyed his natural history courses, but that just wasn't for him sitting in the museum a lot. Um, so that's one piece. And he also had an interest, I think, in uh, politics and history and other things. But that came, I think, out of partly when his father died in um, around Christmas 1877. His father became sick and Roosevelt went home. And, um, of course, his dad gave him a shotgun for <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> which is a good, good Rooseveltian present. Um, but then Roosevelt came back afterwards to Harvard and it wasn't long that his father really descended into um, you know, had a had a stomach tumor, um, an intestinal tumor, and ended up dying uh, in February. And so Roosevelt, I think at that point, it changed a lot of things. But he became the head of the family, um, and I think it it changed the optics of how it looked to be, say, a natural historian who's not going to make a whole lot of money. And I think that helped him pivot toward doing something that was a career and what he thought of as public service, going into, um, you know, politics, the law, et cetera. And, he, you know, after graduation, he immediately started law school but didn't finish because um, he started um, in the legislature. So that's one thing. And I think the, the third thing is that he met Alice Lee. He fell in love. And he got a girlfriend. <laughs> and I think that also – in some of the writings and some of the things in his letters and in his notebooks, you can see him completely falling head over heels for Alice Lee and realizing that he wanted to have a settled existence and that going off to Germany to do graduate work in natural history study or all these other things was not going to be the kind of life that he wanted with his darling little sweetheart, Alice Lee. And so I think all those things kind of pulled, kind of came together and, and caused him to move more toward what at that point was called political economy. He started writing the Naval War of 1812 and um, some of those things. And then pretty quickly after he graduated, um, did law school and then became an assemblyman. And uh, But at the same time, he didn't abandon the field completely. He always looked for ways to get back out there and continue in some small way his work as a natural historian. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's um, kind of one of the arguments that I'm trying to advance or for consideration is that you can see at all these little turning points, even though he didn't decide to be a professional naturalist or a professional natural history writer for his full career, he was president at one point, at all these points along the way, he took the opportunity to turn back to the field and do things. For example, it wasn't long after, you know, he hadn't been assemblyman that long until he met this guy at um, one of his free trade club meeting um, who had a place in the Badlands and had bought, bought land in the Badlands. And Roosevelt wa had always wanted to go out and shoot a buffalo or a bison, as it's called. Um, and he quickly <laughs> signed up and went out there on his own, it turns out, in the end. Um, the Mangrange didn't decided to go with him. Um, but that's what Roosevelt did. Even before Alice Lee died, um, Roosevelt just turned from the assemblyman stuff at one of their breaks to go out to the field to shoot a buffalo. And that is a perfect example of the kind of thing that he wanted to do. And then later on, he obviously expanded on that work in the Badlands, um, which we can talk about more. But I think that was just a feature. If you start adding it up over his life, it's it's no mistake. He just that's the way he lived. He would do things, sort of in the office, professionally, et cetera. But even while president, he would escape to the field to hunt, to do conservation work, to do whatever it was. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating. But finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom, made-to-measure suit. 
Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money and things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So yeah, let's talk about his Badlands experience. So the thing that kicked that off was both his wife and his mother died on the same day. Um... And Roosevelt decided to get out of Dodge, needed something, needed a change. So he went out to the Dakotas, to the Badlands, bought a ranch, tried his hand as a cattle rancher, and in the process, you know, had some adventures along the way. Right. How did that experience in the Badlands shape Roosevelt's life? I mean, what insights did you get from his field notes that yeah. you saw that, that a transformation was taking place? Yeah, well, there are a whole bunch of elements, and I think one of the things is that the Badlands destination and Badlands piece of his life started before Alice Lee and his mother died, you know, died on the same day. Um, he had gone out to, as we said, to go shoot a buffalo 
and bought the ranch, right? So he had already invested and wanted to go out there and had written to Alice Lee about this saying, you know, this is really important to me, basically. And he had already envisioned the Badlands being a destination where he wanted to explore. It obviously took on a different place once Alice died. Um, It was a place where he went out for seclusion and to, to sort of work through the grief. There's no question about that. But that had been set in motion, going to the Badlands, that is, well before um, Alice Lee died. So sometimes people tell the story that that's the place where he went to deal with this grief, which is absolutely true. But he had already set that place up before he knew Alice was going to die, obviously. So the, the question you have, I think, is like, what did it do for him? How did it shape his life? Well, there are a lot of different pieces of that. One that I really focused on in the book is Roosevelt, I think, originally purchased the land in and bought the stake in the ranch in the Badlands to go out and tell stories. He wanted to tell stories about the American West. He was fascinated with the frontier literature, and he wanted to be someone who acted out these hunting narratives, et cetera, and then write them. And that's exactly what he did. You know, he went out there for periods of time, ranched, and then wrote about it. Um, wrote about it in magazine articles, and then you know those got clumped into books: Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail, and The uh, Wilderness Hunter, etc. These really, really pretty fascinating books, sizable. Um, volumes that he wrote. And what I found really interesting is if you look at his field notes, for example, you can see the early versions. I mean, his diaries are really, in some cases, early drafts of the chapters in his books. They're the, they're the kind of brief notes that then led to the stories he told in his books. So he was, yeah, he was just he was finding fodder for his stories that he wanted to tell. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I think he wanted to live that way. And then he saw it was also a money-making proposition. He made money off of his books. And, you know, he wanted to be one of the people telling those stories and and living them out. And he's gotten criticism for that, you know, certainly early on, especially some people like Grinnell and others would give him a hard time in a way, um, sort of saying he was acting as if he'd been out there longer than he had, that he knew more about these animals than he did. Um, but he certainly went out there and, and collected some really, really interesting stories that he told the rest of his life. Certainly the, the boat thief story is one of the best ones. Um, when, you know, if these guys stole his boat and he went after them, so. Yeah. And he arrested them. Um, and I think I thought it was interesting too, you know, being the storyteller, like, you know, there's that famous picture that everyone's probably seen of Roosevelt with his gun and he's got the two guys looking sad, like, it was like it was a posed picture. I don't even think yeah, the people right. like no. they, they, they weren't even like the real criminals were there. It no. was just no. some other people, stand-ins. Yeah, stand-ins for sure. Yeah. And it was just him tell, trying to tell a story. I mean, and I think that's another thing people don't know about Roosevelt. Like the way he made his living mostly was through writing. A huge bit of it. Yeah, he made a lot of his actual income through his written work and the it's fascinating to me when you think about when you look across his writings, um, just his natural history writings are massive. The number of books and articles that he wrote is just is incredible. It's actually hard to quantify. Um, it's hard to actually write down. I included a, a sort of a selected set of writings, um, sort of bibliography in in my work, um, but actually the definitive. Uh, bibliography of all his writings has never been published because it's too big. Um, I mean, you know, whatever he wrote, like 43 books or or similar, depending on how you quantify them, you know, are the edited books because he edited some with um, Henry Catalodge and other people. Um, But all the articles that he wrote have never been fully um, put into a list. I, you know, there, I think there is a, there's a set of index cards in Houghton library that has that, but it's thousands and thousands of them. Wow. So, uh, starting as a boy, Roosevelt was an avid hunter. Like he remember he yep. had a gun as a young age and he would kill, he was even in Egypt, he was shooting birds. Um, and then 
that love of hunting grew as he got older. And, you know, one of the criticisms thrown at Roosevelt that he, you know, had an insatiable bloodlust. Because mm-hmm. um, some some of these trips, maybe you can talk about some of his hunting trips, like the amount of trophies he would collect. I mean, what was like a typical hunting tr- trip like for Roosevelt? Well, I don't, you know, it's funny. Uh, what is a typical hunting trip? I, I think um, there are a few that were pretty iconic or ones that were the most extreme. Obviously, the African safari as, when he finished as president he went on this year-long African safari where there was a joint expedition really with the Smithsonian and he shot, you know, many, many hundreds of animals. And there was also a couple of naturalists that went along that were collecting other things like small mammals and things like that. Um, Edgar Murns and, and uh, Edmund Heller and some people who were professional naturalists went along. So it was a big expedition. But even on that, uh, there were a number of inc- instances where one can point to and really ask legitimate questions about the amount of things, animals that Roosevelt shot and whether they were really a, a reasonable number given the aims even of a of a collecting expedition for a museum. You know, for example, the white rhino, um, even at that time, was extremely rare. And Roosevelt knew this. He wrote about it being very rare. But then he also wrote that he wanted to get some basically I mean, the subtext is he wanted to get some before they were gone for these museums in the United States and a few other places. So there's a question there whether he really should have done that or done that in the extensive way that he did. The white rhino obviously is, you know, an endangered species even at that time. So it's a big question about that. I mean, that question links even back to when he was going out to shoot the buffalo or the bison, if you want to call it by its scientific name. Um, he knew at that point that they were gone. And there's even a, a, a quote that's sort of attributed to him that he wanted to get one while they were still Buffalo left to shoot. Not a, not a really great justification for shooting up Buffalo from a conservationist standpoint, but Roosevelt's full of contradictions as many historians have pointed out that he's this many sided American. And he also then later established all these lands where the bison then came back, right? That these were the places that he established for them to be basically repopulate the plains um, in certain contexts. So there were, there were different pieces of this, but certainly you can see in his notes places where he overshot for sure. And yeah, that, that's that is the contrary. I mean, because he laid, he was one of the the big people involved in laying the conservation movement here in the United States. I mean, he loved animals. Yeah. Like he genuinely yep. loved animals. Like, and I heard once someone say like he loved them so much. Like he he want he had to kill them, which is sort of weird. Yeah. Like he just yeah. wanted to bag them. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really hard contradiction, especially for us now. I think earlier on, um, around Roosevelt's time, less people saw that as quite so incongruous, although Mark Twain sort of really went after Roosevelt about it. There were animal rights people then who really felt like he was a really brutal and um, kind of a barbarian. Um, and it's a, it's a complicated question. And I think, you know, the question of hunting just in general, whether it's okay, what the moral aspects of hunting, even in the first place of any mammal, although even now, there are groups that um, are opposed to butterfly collecting. Um, so it's not even just mammals. So th- that's a big question. And I tried not to sort of carve that piece off, so to speak, of trying to get through all those aspects of the morality, the the manliness aspects of hunting, if you will. There's certainly a, a question around the, the literature around gender identity that, that, you know, looks at historically hunting um, but I tried to not delve into that too much, but just try to understand a little bit about how Roosevelt sort of thought about it, if there are any echoes of that. And certainly later in his life, especially around birds, there's some passages where he clearly indicated that they no longer really should be shooting songbirds, for example. Um, and he looked back and saw that, you know, he would probably collected more than he needed to and that that wasn't really appropriate anymore, for example. 
Yeah. And I think there's a few moments uh, you see in his diaries that you mentioned in his book where these two competing drives that he had within him to, to hunt and then, but to also protect animals. Uh, there was that moment in Africa with the hippo that he ended up yeah. shooting a hippo that, and he, 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 he could tell that he wasn't really happy that he did it. Um, right. Because he tried to hide right. well, it. Really yeah, that it. moment um, when he was on—he was trying to get um, hippo, uh, and he wanted to get a bull and all that stuff. He—he he was in a boat where this launch, and one, you know, hippos are actually one of the more dangerous things to hunt. Um, partly, if you're in a boat, because you can't figure out where they are, and they can—they're um, submerged below you, and if they surface, they can knock the boat over, knock you into the water, and, and then there you're in the water with a school of hippos. So this happened to him, that he was in this launch, and they were going out to shoot one, but then this um, he found that these this school of hippos started to surface, or at least one under the boat, and the, the other men in the, the story goes, the other men in the boat started to shout that he should shoot, and so he shot, and he shot several of them and didn't he was trying to shoot the one that was coming up below it but he ended up shooting four or five hippos that you know once once the boat sort of settled back down he didn't realize it at first but then slowly hippo carcasses started to to come to the surface and he felt very bad about it one because he didn't need all those and two because he knew that he was already under sort of the, the spotlight for his hunting there and didn't want to be seen as what they called a game butcher. And he didn't want that to get out to the press um, and, and have it be another example of how he was a game butcher and not just selecting things for the, for the museum at the Smithsonian. Interesting. So yeah, a lot of things you can glean from his field notes. And I, what I love about his field notes too, and you have them in your book is that on his hunting trips, you know, he would draw pictures, these very rudimentary pictures of the animals that he he bagged, but then he'd show you know where he shot them at. So you, again, like the meticulousness that he that began as a child, like he carried that with him even after. And he's in, I guess he's in his fifties by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was really um, he was a very keen observer, and he would really pay attention to whatever he was doing. And I think that's another piece of what I really learned about Roosevelt by looking at his field notes and by kind of examining what they meant, he clearly was someone who had a careful eye, spent a lot of time trying to understand what was going on around him and documenting it, which doesn't seem to just apply in his work in nature or out in the field. I think there's a case to be made, which I didn't make in the book explicitly. I didn't go through this part, but I think if you look at his that those features of, of a naturalist being, you know, observe things, collect a bunch of different parts and elements, and then try to make sense of them. That's something that he did in all sorts of parts of his life. Um, when he was looking to enact conservation legislation, he went out and tried to understand John Muir, for example, but he also tried to understand lumbermen and ranchers and collect all that information from those observations and then decide what to do with it. So those things to me aren't totally separate from one another, but the fact that he went out to the field with John Muir to understand what Yosemite was all about, he wanted to go there and sleep outside. That's an element of his sort of political and um, professional pursuits as president that harkens back to this mode that we've been talking about, the mode of the naturalist observer. So um, we talked about his Africa trip after he was president. What was his other final big expeditions um, that he took before he died? Yeah. Well, so he, he did the Africa expedition, then he came back and um, had the Bull Moose Party, got shot. And then after that, he did the River of Doubt expedition, um, which was, you know, down this unknown river into the Amazon which has been, you know, really written about a lot and uh, is an incredible story. And then after that, there were a few more that haven't been written about nearly as much, but I find extremely uh, interesting. There's, he went in, um, on a moose hunt in Quebec, which was, uh, has some great stories in it, one being chased by this moose, <laughs> which was kind of a, a wild running, uh, moose in rut and, and 
it kind of went after them, and Roosevelt ended up shooting it, um, which is a great story. And then I think my favorite one actually is his trip to Sanibel and Captiva Island um, with this man named Russell Coles, who was a tobacco dealer by trade, but um, was someone who was a, I mean, a hunter of of manta rays and became sort of an expert on how to hunt these giant mantas, which can have what we think of as wingspans of like 18 feet. They're huge. And they would go out and basically harpoon them and ride them, you know, hold on to this harpoon and, and throw these drogues into the water to try to slow them down. And eventually they would just expire. And when Roosevelt heard about this, he thought, that is really amazing. I want to try that. And so he ended up going down um, and doing this and, and hunting some giant mantas uh, off off the coast of Captiva Island. So I think that's a great story. And just as far as the how it fits into his life, so when Roosevelt did that, it was 1917, and um, Roosevelt then didn't die until the early days of 1919. But one of the last letters he wrote before he died, Roosevelt, was to Russell Coles. And he was saying to Russell that he felt utterly worthless at that point because he was sick, but he was planning on coming back down for another manta hunt with Archie, his son, who had been injured in um, World War One, And he really wanted to get Archie out to the field with him um, to go hunting with Russell Cole. So his mind, even though his body was really expiring, his mind was going back to the field with his own son um, to do another manta hunt. And, and that's why I think that one's so important. When you look at those letters, they're really moving um, because you see a dad who was trying to get his, in, you know, his veteran son who'd been injured significantly um, in World War I out to the field with him on this experience. So he, he had some, some other, a few other trips too. He, he'd gone to the Caribbean to visit William Beebe, who was uh, um, a big naturalist at the time. And did uh, he continue his field notes with these trips as well? Not so much. Um, at least they don't survive. His later field notes, and this is something I think is pretty fascinating to me, is that when he was in Africa, you know, you can see in the book and otherwise you can see his 1909 and 1910 diary. He filled them up. The days he was in Africa, he wrote profusely in his diary of the things he collected, observations, the stomach contents of, of lions, etc. And then also in Africa, he kept um, a manuscript pad that he would write on, a pad of paper that was carbon and had three copies. So he would write the chapters of African Game Trails, which was his book on Africa. Um, He would write them in the field. So his field notes also were manuscript pages. And he would send them off in triplicate in three different directions, actually, in Africa, so that one one would survive and got back to Robert Bridges in New York, so that they could publish these. First, they published them in Scribner's Magazine, and then and then as a bound book, African Game Trails. So in in Africa, he has both the field notes in his diaries, and then these other field notes, which were manuscripts, on the River of Doubt. He no diary accounts survive from him. Kermit, his son, who went along, kept a diary, and we have those at the Library of Congress. But Roosevelt doesn't seem to have kept any diaries, um, but he just did the same thing he did in Africa. He wrote these manuscript pages while he was in the field. There's an iconic photo of Roosevelt sitting at a folding table with a head net and gauntlet gloves to keep biting insects off of him in the jungle, kind of, um, when he was on the River of Doubt. So it seems like later in his life, as he progressed further, he did much more just keeping um, just keeping manuscript notes, et cetera. Um, so they didn't have, uh, we don't have notebooks or field notes from his later expeditions. It's hmm, interesting. Um, yeah. So, Michael, we, we really just uh, scratched the surface here of you know, what what we you can find in Roosevelt's field notes. But I'm curious, as you you read through them, I mean, these are things that Roosevelt actually touched. He actually wrote down and studied mm-hmm. his life. Were there a few lessons, life lessons that you gleamed or took away from looking at Roosevelt's life through his field notes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, 
aside from just being sort of a manuscript nerd and finding it really inspiring to look at them, which in fact, the Harvard ones are all, um, are scanned. Almost all of them are scanned and you can look at them. They're freely available. Um, it's not quite as good as looking at them directly, but it's still pretty moving. Um, I think that my, the biggest lesson that I took and the thing I learned about Roosevelt as a personal lesson was his dedication to going directly to the source, to directly connecting with his world, that he went out and with whatever it was, yes, he was really fascinated with hunting and, and doing these kinds of things. But the conservation thing was something he went out and met with John Muir in Yosemite. He didn't just think about it. He didn't just read about it. He wanted to understand lions. So he went to Africa and he faced, went face to face with lions. Um, dramatic, yes. But when you look at his notes, there's a credibility to that. And we didn't talk much about the, um, the trip to Cuba in the Spanish-American War, uh, but he left his post as the assistant secretary of the Navy, much to the chagrin of his friends and family, to go be on the front lines in Cuba. Um, and you see that in his notebooks, uh, his documents, uh, that he was there and he wanted to be there on the front lines in the battlefield. People have made a lot of, you know, reasons why that was the case, some that he was sort of mad, but he lived his life by connecting with his world and going out there and observing it directly and understanding it firsthand. That's what I find most inspiring about Roosevelt. And the thing I take from him and try to remind myself of is it's great. It's important to go to the source and to not live just uh, in a secondary fashion, but to experience our world. And uh, that's what it's going to take. I think it's really important that our leaders do that um, as much as possible. Well, Michael Canfield, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. And um, I hope that uh, things continue to go well with the, with the art of manliness. It's a great, it's a great site. I appreciate that. My guest today was Michael Canfield. He's the author of the book, Theodore Roosevelt in the Field. You can find it on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And be sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash Canfield to see scanned images of Roosevelt's field notes, as well as links where you can browse more of them online. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps get the word out about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.